This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. Welcome to Good Things on the Bigger Picture, the show where we speak to good people doing good things. Now, Chi Yongling is the executive director of the Third World Network, but her work intersects human rights, environmental rights, social justice, and so much more. Interestingly, she's the inspiration behind the character G on the hugely popular 90s series Captain Planet. And Yongling has also been instrumental in Family Frontiers to ensure that Malaysians have equal rights to confer citizenship on their children and spouses. There's so much there to unpack, but she's joining me now to share just some of the highlights from her long and illustrious career in activism. Welcome, Yogling. How are you today? Very well, thank you, Juliet. Lovely to be with you. Thank you so much for joining me. So yes, no secret, I'm a big fan and you know, I'm so <laughs> delighted to have you on this show. Uh, maybe let's start from the beginning, Yogling. Um, you know, besides just being an environmental and human rights activist, as I mentioned, you're also trained in international law. Can you share how your journey began? You know, do you recall a moment in which you turned towards activism and the environment and all of the things that you work on? Right. Well, I, I've always been very interested in nature and environment, but in a very funny way. And my family teased me endlessly about this, that I am more concerned about protecting it than actually being in it. <laughs> so, you know, I hate exercise. <laughs> so I don't go hiking and I've got, you know, fear of heights, you know. Uh, so, but I just, I just love the the notion from the time I was in school as a kid, you know, uh, that nature and, and, and us as human beings are so intricately linked that uh, we we have to protect it. We have to we have to enjoy it, and I kind of do it in a very peripheral way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I, I love to be in greenery. I love to see. So basically, I've always had that interest uh, about being harmony with nature. Uh, and interestingly, we talk about activism. I would say that uh, without my knowing it. Uh, the activism started with uh, with the Consumers Association of Penang mm-hmm. because CAP, um, you know, in the 70s uh, realized that, uh, you know, we had so many challenges in the country, not just about consumer rights in the traditional sense, but about, you know, communities and environment uh, and, and access to information, uh, justice, you know, under, under the law. Yeah. So a lot of the, the work that CAP did you know, they kept running into the fact that in this country, in the 70s, up to even, yeah, the late 70s, early 80s, that we only had one law faculty in the whole country, and that wasn't University of Malaya. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, they took in only 50 students a year when we finally had, you know, a faculty here. Before that, Malaysians would go to Singapore, or if they had money, they would go to the UK, uh, or your parents would save up to send you overseas study, or India. So... So it was really that gap that led to uh, SM Muhammad Idris and Martin Cole, mm-hmm. you know, uh, our two sort of uh, very amazing people. I think we've lost them, unfortunately, recently. So they lobbied. They went and lobbied the University of Malaya to introduce consumer law. Right. Uh, and that was the beginning of the journey without, like I say, my knowing it. Um, <laughs> so when I went into the law faculty, uh, I, I was uh, kind of disappointed in the first couple of years because I didn't see law as something that was to do with justice and human rights, because you have to study the brass tax first, you know, yeah, of course. but I had always had very inspiring teachers in school and also constitutional law uh, was one of my favorite subjects. Uh, and that takes me to my latest story on family frontiers of and course. equal rights for women. But there was, and uh, Kat managed to convince the university and the faculty. And when I was going into my third year, uh, Sulaiman Abdullah, one of our leading, you know, uh, public interest lawyers in the country, he and Merun Siraj, another, you know, activist uh, for women's rights, 
uh, and one of the early members of Suhatnam. So uh, the husband and wife team had come back from the UK and uh, Suhaiman was uh, asked to, uh, to run the consumer law course. And that's how I uh, actually signed up for that. And that was really, I think, really the beginning of my activism. And my very good friend, Mina Rahman, uh, we were classmates, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, uh, and after we did the seminars and we were so, uh, 17 of us signed up, we were so, uh, you know, we read everything. Suhaiman said, you've spent the first term reading everything and anything you can get hold of that I will give you a reading list for, and not law. We read politics, history, you know, uh, yeah. ecology, um, uh, food and agriculture, nutrition, human rights. Um, and then at the end of it, we all felt so frustrated because all our analysis came up to, you know, big corporations were unaccountable, policies and laws, which were not enough, you know, international politics. Uh, and he said, right now it's time for you to go meet people who do something about it, you know. Mm -hmm. And we went on a train, we went to Penang, and this was in 1980, uh, and we met uh, CAP. And Sabah Alam. Yep. And there it was. <laughs> there it was. And, you know, you, um, you, as I mentioned, you're trained in international law. Yes. And I do know that, uh, you know, after, then you went to the UK on a scholarship and you did all of mm -hmm. that. Uh, you you were in academia for about five years, but then you left, right? Yes. And you went permanently yes. into third world networks. Well, work. I, yeah, I went, I went into, uh, back to academia because I felt that, you know, what changed my life so much were the teachers. Mm -hmm. uh, there were, you know, there were so many people uh, in the law faculty who just uh, stimulated, inspired, supported, and we we actually developed a whole cluster of public interest cases, uh, law courses. So after consumer law, we in the in that class, we were we had one seminar on environment. We were so taken by it, we felt so hungry for it. So we lobbied the faculty wow. uh, to actually introduce environmental law in the final year. So so I had that privilege of doing that. And then the other thing that the faculty introduced was compulsory for all first year students in the University of Malaya Law Faculty which is uh, 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 what we call law and society. Okay. So this cluster of, of, of courses shaped a lot of, uh, you know, our thinking, you know, for, for at least two, three generations of students. So I felt it was important to go back and continue doing that. And I've always loved sort of sharing and, and mentoring, mm -hmm. uh, but I always kept uh, very, very much uh, my, my voluntary work with Sabah Alam because environment being, you know, where I was really interested in. So I always kept, and I, the students continued to go. So we had a very good relationship with both CAP and Sabah Alam, where our students would go out there for the yearly exposure trip uh, and also do their internships, uh, write the dissertation final year papers linked to, you know, uh, issues that would also help uh, in, in the activism that uh, CAP and Sabah Alam had been leading. Okay. And that's something actually what I wanted to ask you. You know, we always uh, hear the three, those three organizations are sort of yes. linked together. You work together. And for those unfamiliar, how would you describe, uh, you know, how it is that you guys are connected actually to okay. the work that you do? Well, we are sister organizations. Uh, uh, so CAP actually was, uh, well, the word Penang is there, but they were very quickly doing national outreach, right? Yeah. Uh, and then they had a sort of environment uh, section. Mm -hmm. And because so many environmental challenges in the countries uh, in the 70s and 80s, so Sabah Alam was actually the born out of CAP, okay. uh, you know, the, the former environment section of CAP. Okay. And then by the uh, late 70s, early 80s, the globalization and how international trade, uh, you know, and how, uh, you know, economies like Malaysia, you know, we export a lot of our agricultural products. We are getting more into getting ideas from outside. The UN had so many, you know, issues around climate change was coming up, biodiversity loss, human rights. 
Uh, and also on the trade side, right? You had the World Bank, IMF, influencing our thinking, our policies, and of course the, the, the trade issues became what today is the World Trade Organization. So CAP realized very early, people like Martin and Idris, that it is not enough for us to do work at the national level because no matter how much you work to change things, and you have to at home, uh, and to make things work when we have good laws and policies to make sure they implemented, to raise awareness about people, that they have rights that in the end, a lot of what impacts a country like ours, especially in the developing world, is the global policy. You know, the, the geopolitics of what Washington and Brussels and London uh, yeah. decide. So the World Network was actually formed to basically have a, a, a more direct voice of uh, citizens and activists of the South uh, in those international spaces, right. especially the United Nations, which is much more democratic and open. Uh, so we were formed. So Tottenham Network is actually another child, and we call it sister organizations. Uh, so we do we became kind of the international arm, but not to just be floating up there doing international work, but always linked to the national. So we are international. We are Malaysian-born headquarters in Penang, uh, <laughs> and we have partners in many different countries, uh, building the same capacity and like-mindedness of approaching um, what we hope will be a sustainable and just world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, am I correct in saying that uh, you work a lot at the grassroots level, but of course, you know, you've worked directly with policymakers, you know, shaping laws, uh, both locally and internationally. Um, what has that been like, you know, uh, professionally to be in the sort of middle ground between two worlds that, you know, yeah. seemingly don't meet? <laughs> well, they actually are very, very linked. You know, something that is decided at the global level impacts the ground. Sure. You know, I mean, even at the national level, we know, you know whatever Putrajaya decides, you know, if they don't get what is right and what is a reality is going to go wrong and it can actually cause a lot of problems mm. uh, or the weaker and the most vulnerable don't get their voices heard so it's the same thing so so our our experience at the national level when we went to the international level it was exactly the same and then we realized you know what was very interesting that when we go to negotiations in the united nations or we, we are able to observe some of the things going on in the trade arena that our policymakers, our civil servants our politicians were actually not as prepared as they should be in those international decision-making and debates. Why? Most of it is a capacity issue because the the, the rich countries have huge think tanks. uh, They can afford, the OECD has a secretary that churns out reports and they shape thinking. And there are thousands of them. But developing countries, uh, you know, we are still struggling today, right? Uh, Even in Malaysia, we used to have a research, uh, clear research policy, research department in every ministry today, they hardly exist and we outsource a lot of research. So some of these things have to be really done in a much more public way, you know, you, you, so, so we felt that there was a gap. So that's why a lot of the work that TWN does, and it is, uh, it, we, we are building knowledge and sharing information with government policymakers, politicians, the MPs, um, as well as with the public, you know, uh, yeah. because the analysis uh, we hope will inform and we can maybe collectively, uh, you know, bring more information and understanding uh, and, and help the government as well. Even as we are independent and critical, we also uh, engage uh, very, uh, very strongly uh, when we can work together. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you've been such a, I've learned so much from the Third World Network's work. <laughs> I cannot tell you how much. And, you know, we try our best to disseminate that information. And I think there's growing interest. Mm-hmm. And I mean, not growing interest, there is a lot more interest and there is, you know, more understanding on mm-hmm. what it is on all these intersections, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, I'm speaking today to Chi Yok Ling. She's the Executive Director of Third World Network. It is another episode of Good Things on the Bigger Picture. When we come back from this break, I'm going to find out more about how Yuklin became the inspiration for a very popular cartoon uh, character uh, from the 90s. Keep it right here on Good Things on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9.
Welcome back. This is Good Things on the Bigger Picture, where we speak to good people doing good things. Today on the show, I'm joined by Chi Yok Ling. She's the Executive Director of the Third World Network. Uh, she's an environmental justice uh, advocate. She's a social justice advocate, also working on human rights, so many different things. And uh, Yok Ling is kindly sharing her story with us today on the show. Um, so Yok Ling, yes, as I keep mentioning, I was so delighted when I read this Malaysia Kini article last year that you were the inspiration behind the character G on that very popular 90s cartoon. <laughs> Uh, Captain Planet and the Planet Tears. I cannot tell you how delighted I was that it was a Malaysian who was the Asian that was, you know, in that series. Can you share that story with us? You know, how did you meet the creator of Captain Planet, Barbara Pyle, in the first place? Yeah, well, um, it all started when, um, when well, actually it was the first time uh, we in the Sabah Alam uh, and CAP, Consumers Association of Penang and the World Network really went, uh, you know, focus on one one very important historical event and this was like it started like in the in 1990 when the united nations uh, all the member states you know including malaysia malaysia played a, the malaysian government played a very leading role especially our foreign affairs ministry back yeah. then and so there was this uh, uh, because the first report of the intergovernmental panel on climate change had come up you know the first consensus report would say there is a link between human activity and global warming right this yeah. was contested for a long time yeah uh, and then there was the devastation of, uh, of, of forests from Sarawak over logging to Amazonia, you know, converting uh, the Amazon into cattle ranches and, and, and things like that. So, so there was a lot of activism from the ground, you know, and, and the signs. Uh, and also decertification was happening when you don't use your land rightly. So there was this moment where there was a big momentum at the global level at the UN. And this was really, I think, I would say, looking back, it was a lot of the pressure from the ground of the impact on environment and peoples. And so the UN decided that they would hold this big conference on environment and development. And there were two and a half years of preparation, you know, negotiations that landed up with, uh, the, you know, if you all remember 1992, what we call the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro. So um, that was my first big international exposure uh, as part of uh, Sabah Alam and the World Network. So Martin bled our Martin Collett, our little team. We went to Geneva, we went to New York, where all these were being negotiated and ended up in Rio. And somewhere along the line, uh, uh, Barbara Pyle, who was at that time working for CNN, and CNN was pretty new, uh, and and they wanted to get into this whole thing, and was very much she was very inspired, and she said, "Let's go cover it." So CNN was covering this big process. And there was this big project that came together from different partners uh, outside of governments to have this big tree of life, uh, you know, to just just bring together the voices and uh, of of people of children uh, from the, like from deepest Amazonia to the to the industrialized north, and so it, at Rio there was this big 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 tree with all the messages collected over time. So so Barbara Pyle from CNN, you know, followed this, and she met a number of us. Uh, she met uh, a, a, an amazing young Kayoko, uh, Kayoko, you know, indigenous person uh, from the Amazonia. She met me uh, and then a few others. And along the way, we gave her this idea that young people, because a lot of young people were inspired, you know, getting into the international arena for the first time. And the UN opened its doors, you know, yeah. uh, beyond the kind of uh, traditional, very sort of like big international organizations. So it was a, it was like a big carnival of activism. So she then got inspired along the way uh, to to tell the story 
uh, you know, of, of Gaia, the planet being devastated by, and she took real cases, you know, corporations of, that pollute, you know, the evil guy. So you got the good guy, the bad guy. And there was this Captain Planet guy. Don't ask me why she made him so green face. <laughs> but Captain Planet would come and save the world. But he could only be called if these five young people got together, right? And they had these rings and everything. So it's green yeah. fire, earth, you know, uh, water. I was, you know, in, uh, so I was the inspiration for uh, for water. Water, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I didn't know that either. Yes. <laughs> it was very funny because, uh, and, and then of course the, the series launched and it was very popular. And I remember watching it because it was all over the world. Because CNN, you know, had their, their, their sort of uh, yeah. tentacles everywhere. So a few years later, uh, there was a sort of, you know, follow up to what came out of Rio, you know, to the United Nations in, in New York was having another meeting. And I was there and literally I was walking, you know, towards the UN outside in the street. And this voice comes out and say, gee, you know, <laughs> and I turned around and there was Barbara Pyle and she said, oh my God, so good to see you. We haven't seen you since Rio. How are you? So we were chatting, chatting, literally in, you know, on the street outside the UN oh building in goodness. New York. And then she said, uh, you know, and I said, oh, uh, and I knew she was involved in that, you know, that whole series of the cartoon. I said, by the way, you know, that's a brilliant, uh, brilliant uh, series. I love it, you know, uh, uh, and and I'm going to make sure my children are going to watch it, you know. Um, and I had my children because I hadn't had them yet at that time. Okay. <laughs> I thought she thought it was just great for young people. And she said, you know, you are one of those characters. That's how I found out years later. <laughs> That's so crazy. You know, and then she 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 ducked into her. She always carries this sort of big big bag, you know. And she ducked into it like a Mary Poppins bag with lots of things. And she pulled out, you know, this strip of uh, you know, the stickers of the Captain Planet and the Planeteers. Okay. And she said, "Yeah, I'm gonna give this to you. You know, as a souvenir." And I still have it oh. in my in my drawer and I've shown that to my kids uh, because, you know, with the reruns, you know, they, they watched it when they were little. But yeah. I am stunned how there are now even new generations. There's a young Captain Planet network on Facebook, yes. Planeteers. Yes. And Barbara Powell herself, you know, uh, last year because of the anniversary, she co- contacted, somehow she contacted a number of us who were still contactable. She tracked me down. And uh, in 2020, in the midst of all the uh, uh, COVID pandemic, she organized planeteers together, in, in, you know, uh, the surviving ones, the original ones, uh, in, you know, and and uh, and the next two, three generations. It was really, really amazing. It is amazing. I mean, it, it had such a huge <laughs> impact on me. I watched it, you know, in the 90s when it was coming out. I, as I shared with you off air, um, I named my daughter Gaia after that. Yeah, I know, I know. There's just so much. Um, it had a real impact because like you said, it used um, real uh, stories you know it was yes. real issues and um it was interesting like you know at, at that age to sort of try and understand all these things that were happening yes i think it, it's a very it was, the storytelling was very vivid uh, yes. and and i think she chose young people because she wanted to show that the activism the energy uh you know is intergenerational right yes. uh, you know this is what the talk was in in, in 1992 that the responsibility of the current generation is to the future and all of us have to do our part. So I think it's still a very strong message and all the more, I think that solidarity, but I would say, you know, it's also linking uh, understanding environment with understanding the drivers behind environmental destruction, yes. the drivers behind who controls natural resources. And that will take us into, you know, economics uh, and the way, you know, uh, economics is set up globally and nationally mm-hmm. uh, and power, who holds power, who should be accountable. Uh, I think I think that that is you know 
is is still very very relevant. <laughs> it is, it is, and and you know that the fact that you know it was everybody from all across the world coming together because this is something that has no borders. That's right. This is that's a, right. But we have to understand that it's not a one captain panel who come and save us. Yes, you know? I know, I know. It was the five of you. <laughs> it was the five years, yeah. But also one without the other wouldn't work. And I think that solidarity message is is powerful. Yeah, for sure. And and you know, speaking of solidarity, you know, on on a more personal note, also, I just mm-hmm. want to shift the focus now to family frontiers. You know, sure. so. As you mentioned, uh, you know, your interest in constitutional law, but also your own personal um, experiences uh, caused you, well, you know, sort of led you into working on this. Um, can you share Can you share that with us? You know, why it is that, you know, you got involved in the Family Frontiers uh, fight? Yeah, well, I, um, when, you know, I was out of the country for a number of years because uh, the one that was set up, uh, we, you know, uh, a small office just to learn about China. So I was in Beijing for more than 10 years. But of course, I came in and out, came home often. But uh, when when I uh, you mentioned earlier on that I had gone off to do my masters overseas, I was in the UK, and that's where I met my husband. Right. So uh, so he is not Malaysian, and then we uh, ended up uh, at some point uh, working in in Hong Kong. He was a journalist, mm-hmm. so uh, so we had uh, our daughter there. She was born in Hong Kong, okay. and I kind of knew at that time, you know, uh, that uh, I was aware that uh, if if as a Malaysian woman and your child is born overseas and your husband is not Malaysian, then you do not automatically confer citizenship on your child. Yeah. Unlike a Malaysian man anywhere in the world, because our constitution from early days, you know, crafted during the very colonial kind of thinking uh, um, and sort of um, did not regard women as having the right to pass citizenship. So you, your children follow your, 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 your husband, right? Yeah. Uh, that's an ex- there was an exception, you know. There's a reason for that, but we won't go into that. But there was a, there was an amendment made to the constitution in '62 that if the if that same family were in Malaysia and that child was born here of the Malaysian mother, uh, then that child will be citizenship automatically. So it's a matter of whether you're born here or not, yeah, because yeah. we had that that opportunity. And I didn't come back because at the same time uh, we uh, we we actually started adopting uh, a baby. Okay. And so uh, coming home was not an option for me. And uh, then when I went to the to the Malaysian High Commission in Hong Kong, I said, okay, I'll just really register my child's birth, all right? Mm-hmm. Because if something happens, you know, today we live in a very turbulent world. I just want to know that I can register my child as having been born to me, a Malaysian overseas. And I was told at the High Commission, you can't do that because you this we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't register any child of a of a Malaysian woman overseas. Mm. I said, I know I cannot get citizenship for her, right? Yeah. But just to register, if something happens, then you know my child can be with me, all right? Yeah. You have evacuated us or something. And they said, no, we're very sorry, we can't do that. There is no procedure. So that was my first personal experience. And of course we've been lucky. We you know when we came back, you know, my husband was working, uh, there was a work visa, but my children were always foreigners mm. always foreigners we had to go and get a student visa we have to do all that and then they went overseas we went to China you know so I have not gone through the pain and the, and the trauma that many of the families have, have, have been going through because we were in a situation where we had that option yeah. but in the last two years with the closure of the borders my children cannot come home That's I only saw my daughter she just came back last week through the Langkawi bubble oh. because she's a tourist right um, so anyway, yep. so when I came back, uh, Bina, you know, uh, who is this amazing woman, and yes. I think you met her. Yes. She had been working, she's a foreign spouse herself, you know, her husband is Malaysian, and she had been working very hard for years to get, uh, you know, uh, you know, good treatment and, and fair treatment, you know, uh, for, for foreign spouses and their families. So this whole thing with the children had come up. So she 
And I met at the at the workshop and then we connected. Uh, and then I realized that this was really the scale of the problem was, was crazy and nothing had changed, right? Um, so this was before COVID. So we got together and, you know, a group of women, uh, some are, it's amazing. It's a group of women like Suri and Nas and Huying, you know, and Pospina and Melinda, the whole lot, you know, amazing. Uh, and Asha. You know, these, these are, we are Malaysian and non-Malaysian. We are women who are married to, you know, uh, to non-Malaysians. And we decided we had to organize ourselves. Uh, the Foreign Spouse Support Group was a platform and it was doing amazing work, you know, surveys, et cetera. But we felt that we should have a legal entity so that we can do more. And the idea of going to court came because many, you know, if you don't get this natural, uh, natural, natural by law, you know, automatic citizenship, you can apply under another part of the constitution. But that application for citizenship is at the mercy and discretion of the Minister of Home Affairs. And the success rate is abysmal. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Abysmal, less than 2% will succeed. And you can do it for five years, 10 years. They don't tell you why when they reject you. Yeah. So we thought this is not fair. We are only one of 25 countries left in the world. So we decided that we will explore not the challenging of the government, but to get an interpretation, go to the courts to get our remedy, right? Yeah. Uh, Parliament did not change the law uh, on citizenship, even though we changed the constitution to put that equal treatment for women without discrimination based on gender, yes. all right? And that would be meaningless if we don't have an interpretation of the constitution in the 21st century that recognizes equal rights for women yeah. for citizenship. So we, 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 we met up, uh, we brought the idea, uh, we discussed it with uh, Gudel Singh Nija, who is our top constitutional lawyer in this country. He said, this is a case that needs to go to the court. So he volunteered his, his pro bono, as he does for all his public interest cases. Mm -hmm. we, we have a campaign. It's not just about the court case. The court case seeks a remedy of interpretation, but it is the campaign of every mother, every child involved in this, and the fathers, and the grandparents. So it's been an amazing journey. And of course, uh, we won the high court case. We, we, we won the case in September of 2020. Uh, uh, 20. 20, yeah. But we've been, the government has been resisting us. So that's another story. That but, is a uh, very frustrating yeah. story. It's yes. a funny story. But, you know, but the first three mothers have gotten the citizenship papers. That's right. There are three of the six mothers who are plaintiffs. And there are many who have also applied overseas as well as here. So, so I'm really proud to be part of that because I do not think that any family should be put through this totally unnecessary, uh, and, the not, and the reasons given by the government are so ridiculous, uh, but the courts have been on our side, and we look, and you know, on 23rd of March is our uh, yes. appeal, but we still have a campaign calling the government, withdraw the appeal, respect the court's decision. Yes, I mean, we talk so much about Cloaca Malaysia, right? I yes, mean, that we? is so ironical, so <laughs> ironical. Every time I hear, you know, Cloaca Malaysia and all the, and then Children's Day, Prime Minister goes and, you know, all children are so important. And I say, you know, we have a whole section about our population, you know, and these children, some of them, you know, they have siblings who are born here, right? Yes. Yeah, they are Malaysians and they cannot understand why, you know, okay. uh, they are not the same as their brothers and sisters. Anyway, so Fabi Frontiers is, is a personal crusade. It is a human rights issue. Uh, and I feel very privileged to have, you know, what I believed in my professional world is important to do, coming together with, with my a personal, strong personal sort of uh, a passion to get things right and you know to get that together in the lifetime is 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 great 
You're all amazing. I mean, the whole team of you, you know, it's been really an uphill battle. I mean, yes, you've had your supporters, but, you know, you've been facing so much of, yeah, so much from the yeah, government. Yeah, the roller coaster, you know, you yeah, win, you lose, you, you get kicked out, you know, the, the government's case get thrown out and then they try to stop us and then strike out, you know, up and down, up and down. It's very traumatic. But BFM has been fantastic. I have to say thank you because you have, uh, you know, you have given voice to many of the mothers and, uh, you know, and family frontiers. And I think you have helped a lot to raise awareness. So many Malaysians are so appalled. They, they never thought yes. we had such a law. <laughs> that right. was actually the reaction we got a lot. Like, how can they do this to us? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, but, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, but another thing that I really, you know, will quickly touch on, which I am very, which I feel really important that we have managed to achieve again through amazing collective work, is really access to medicines. I think we have also come onto your, your, you know, other yes. parts of your program yes. on how we overcome monopolies of, uh, you know, patents and intellectual property to make sure that people who have HIV, hepatitis, and now hopefully with cancer, that we can fight for access to affordable medicines. Uh, we have come a long way in this country. We have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's another big battle of, you know, uh, patient groups, communities, families, uh, fighting for a basic right to, to health. Yeah. How far do you think we've come and how far do you think we need to go with regard to that in particular? Well, the... Well, to be very honest, you know, one of the one of the areas that we need really good reform is our our law uh, that that decides on when uh, you want to give uh, under what conditions you give a twenty year patent, uh, you know, which is a monopoly over yeah. medicines, yeah, and yeah. vaccines and diagnostics, you know, you name it. And and uh, that to twenty years is an international requirement in the WTO, the World Trade Organization uh, agreement. But there are many ways to make it. Uh, more public health friendly while you comply with the international law. Mm-hmm. So we have some good provisions in our law. We also have some which are very regressive. Uh, so what happens in effect is that a lot of medicines uh, get a lot of patents uh, over it that you may find in India or other countries, they are, they are generic, what we call generic available. That means there are no barriers on, on monopoly of intellectual property. You can have more than two or three companies manufacturing it. The price just goes down. Yeah. We have a lot of patents like that, which uh, because of uh, our, our, our standards of patent and our law, uh, we and also one medicine is not one pattern. One medicine can have multiple patterns. It can just stretch on. You know, you, you apply for a later one because you made some little change, and it goes on and on. So, so this is what we call evergreening of patterns, which really keeps the market only dominated by one medicine. Mm-hmm. It's something that we have managed to crack for hepatitis C. Yes. But in the end, we did it not through the improvement in the patent law, but because there is an option where the government can use what we call a compulsory license. In other words, when you cannot get the company to voluntarily you know, uh, drop the price or, or give other companies a uh, license to manufacture locally, then you can ask the government uh, and public health has been invoked uh, in Malaysia uh, in a period of 15 years. We only did it twice, once for HIV yeah. uh, back in 2003 and 2017 for hepatitis C. But having put that into the, the law and all that, we the government could roll out, MOH, Ministry of Health could roll out free treatment mm-hmm. for hepatitis C uh, as well recently. And that is an amazing achievement. It went from something like 400,000 ringgit for 12 weeks treatment to uh, about maybe uh, 400, less than 400. Yeah, life-saving treatment, you know. Life-saving, you know. Um, And I want to pay tribute to all the patient groups uh, and all the health activists who really came together and the Ministry of Health 
And in the end, cabinet made a decision, but it was tough. I mean, it should be straightforward because it's in the law, <laughs> you know, internationally and locally. Yeah. But the pressure from the pharmaceutical companies and even from the U.S. embassy, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because of the companies involved was, was quite strong. And not just in Malaysia, it happens in many, many countries around the world. Mm-hmm. And that fight continues, of course. And so, right, like, look at COVID, you know, vaccines, right? There's a big, big fight going on. There uh, you go, yeah. But I'm hopeful because I think in the end, health, environment, uh, you know, equal rights, they are so fundamental in, in every one of our society. And all interlinked, of course. And all interlinked. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> all interlinked. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We're just going to go for one more quick break, Yukling. When we come back, I just want to ask you about some other some things that you think still we need to work on. I'm speaking today to Chi Yukling. She's the Executive Director of Third World Network. Uh, we'll have more after this quick break. You're listening to Good Things on the Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Good Things on The Bigger Picture, the show where we speak to good people doing good things. Today, I'm joined by the amazing Chi Yok Ling. She's the executive director of the Third World Network. Her work intersects environment, uh, social justice, human rights, uh, so many things. And Yok Ling is kindly sharing her story with us today. So Yok Ling, before the break, you know, we spoke about some career highs, uh, I suppose, if you want to call it that. Um, but what else, you know, what would you consider uh, something that you're most proud of, one of your successes, I suppose? Hmm. You know, I, I would say uh, the fact that I have been able to work with uh, so many of my colleagues over the years to build up a team of really amazing people uh, within the old network. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I was I was the first person to be working full time for the old network because, you know, as I was saying earlier on, we were we were actually, uh, you know, given birth to by the Consumers Association of Penang That's back right. in 1983, 84. And um, and uh, so we were all doing the international work, you know, uh, while we were working in Sabah uh, uh, Alam or in uh, in CAP in CAP, sure. and or I in the university in those years. So we have a, so we were all volunteers, you know, uh, doing the world network work. So when I um, moved to 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 Hong Kong because my husband was transferred there, uh, you know, as a journalist. Uh, Martin Kaur said, you know what, we're not going to lose you, all right, since you have to leave Sabah Alam, because I was I was a, a secretary of Sabah Alam at that time. Mm-hmm. He said, why don't you just work for the old network? You, you can be our full-time staff. Uh, we had no money because there was no project, there was no, you know, but he said, we'll find something, you know, you, you just go, you know. Um, so so I, I feel perhaps in terms of some personal sense of, you know, what I would say is achievement, mm-hmm would be that having been that first person to be a full-time football network staff member, that today, you know, uh, to be in the privileged position of being its executive director, I have been able to work uh, with, with some amazing, mostly women, actually. Interesting, <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and, of course, mentored by, you know, uh, uh, Martin and Idris and so many others, um, to really build a team, you know, a team of Malaysians, as well as really dedicated, passionate uh, committed people, uh, we're people from the Philippines, from Egypt, uh, you know, from India, from 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 Nepal, uh, you know, from Australia. Uh, she's Australian, Indonesian, Chinese, <laughs> uh, and and Lebanon, and and so so for me that team that exists today, that they're so dynamic because the World Network covers sustainable development issues very broadly, you know, mm-hmm. what you talked about, the interlinkages. Yeah. So we have uh, finance, you know, uh, climate change, trade and investment. We have agriculture, farmers' rights, uh, you know, health. Uh, so so people look at it and say, my God, you know, it's so many things, right? Yeah, yeah. But they're so interconnected. 
and and then we work with partners and pools of experts and all kinds of people. So it's it's an it's an organizational logistical challenge, and I'm not the most systematic or organized person that I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, the team. So for me, that is my proudest proudest thing. And and uh, so now I am working on how to transit out. And I will continue doing this work. I do not. My husband always says to me, "Do you see yourself doing this for the rest of your life?" I do. When I meet some of my classmates from school or university, saying, "Are you still with?" Uh, I say, "Yes, I am." And I, every and it's exciting, you know. I think that's a secret. You do different things, so you never get bored. But just delve, you know, diving deep into things, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. But having that team, so I can, you know, transit, you know, gracefully out. Still do all the, all the, all the, all the, you know, sort of work. But then let somebody else run the organization <laughs> and do the fundraising. Uh, no, but seriously, that that for me is is uh, uh, my proudest, proudest. Uh, apart from my family, of course. <laughs> Work life balance very, very important. Okay, okay. I mean, you have an amazing team uh, at DW, and I mean, you provide such. Uh, critical, you know, information to sort of counterbalance the mainstream sort of information that's being fed out by the, well, let's just say the corporations, the the rich governments and all of that, you know, it's so good to have that there so that you can actually see what's happening on the ground. So, I mean, thank you to you and your team for the work that you do. It's so critical. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, um, you know, as we said, challenges still remain. Mm. I suppose to you, what is the biggest challenge that you still see or that you still feel you haven't overcome yet? Well, I I, I think that... uh, you know, I guess as you get older, one then looks at everything with a you know a perspective of time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I tell a lot of our younger colleagues, you know, sometimes you get very frustrated. Yeah. Uh, but then you know. It, things are not that different you know we went through you know these cycles where there will be moments where you can have breakthroughs in achieving something but you know then you have steps going backwards uh, I think we also live uh, wherever we are I mean doing international work is is about in the end national work because uh, international decisions are made by national decision makers who come together you know so so there's a lot of work that has to be done on the ground and the ground means also people whose voices continue not to have the right place and space uh, and moment to be heard mm-hmm. you know so 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 for, for the network wherever we are based and we, we the people who are in different countries come from those countries of course our geneva team you know is kind of mixed because we have to deal with all those uh, you know un and wto organizations there but to be rooted all the time to to give voice and work with so many of our partners so i think i think we are still a long way because the inequalities in the world have been are deeper than they were when i started as a young activist they are deeper in many ways concentration of power and wealth it's actually worse than we have ever seen in a long time. And today, as we speak, we have a war going on. Yeah. You know, the the, the 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 kind of uncertainties. People are talking about the third war, world war. You know, I mean, we think that, uh, and here now you've got nuclear, and 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 it's not straightforward. It's quite complicated as well, right? So, so I think moving forward for us, in the end, we we are not very powerful because there's the what we call the system. Those who are who have wealth and political position, they are powerful. We are. We are kind of like trying to navigate and 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 be creative and and be and, and take the moment and seize the moment, and we and and transparency, openness. I think is very important because the more people know, that's for us. That's why in in the world network and all our sister organizations, getting information out there. Yeah. And in social media, is very challenging because you get so many things going viral. Right? You can't yeah. tell what is true, what is not true. Yeah. I mean, not that civil society organizations are the fountain of truth and, and knowledge. No, we are learning all the time. So I would say moving forward, always continue to learn and learn and learn. We never will ever say, oh, my God, this is amazing. I'm learning something new. You know, we, we never, never stop saying that. Uh, I, I think that uh, we are in for some hard times. 
But I think we need to learn from history, learn from our experience, uh, and be more prepared each time. And also, you know, when we compress things, it sounds very sort of exciting achievements, but a lot of things that, that actually get achieved take a lot of hard work, hard work Years and faith. Of work, right? And this is why I believe very strongly and, and know that we have to have that, that balance. If we, if we are, are stressed out, burnt out, you know, we, we don't have a life outside of our work, uh, then, then we are not going to be able to do the work. This is long. This is long haul, you know. Uh, this is long haul, and it's going to be our children, their children. Uh, we have to be vigilant. So I'm not answering your question specifically. I'm just saying that that's the mindset we need to have, uh, so that we uh, we will persevere. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, keep learning, never stop learning. Basically, what I'm getting from you is that. And also, I guess, don't give in to apathy and, and, and despair as well, right? And don't give up. Don't give up. Sometimes yeah. you say, oh my God, we've done all this and it's not working, you know? Yeah. You see, you stop thinking that it's, it's failed, something has failed. Yeah. You say, look, you've come 80%, 90%. It's when you give up in the last, you know, because <laughs> that's it. You don't, you know? So never think it's a half, half full, half empty kind of, you know, uh, mm. analogy, you know? Okay. Never, because you never know what's going on, you know, in, in different spaces and how the noise that we make you know, maybe something that was bad, you couldn't stop. But the noise that you make and the, the awareness that you've raised, the knowledge you have shared means that it may not happen again. Mm-hmm. And that itself is an achievement, you know, especially mm-hmm. at the national level work as well. Okay. All right. And I guess, you know, I, I'm just so happy to hear that, you know, you work with a team of women uh, mostly. And I just wanted to ask you, I mean, it was International Women's Day on Tuesday. Yes. Yeah. The theme this year was gender equality today for sustainable tomorrow. I think something that you guys have been working on for years mm. now. Um, how how do you hope we ensure that there is sort of meaningful participation of women with diverse backgrounds, right, um, in relevant decision making processes? Yeah, I think you know this. This uh, you know there is a difference between being feminist mm. uh, and just saying you uh, and 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 uh, and saying that we just want to mainstream gender. Mainstream gender has become a very uh, it's a cliche. You know, uh, the UN has adopted it everywhere. But what do you actually mean? Because in the end, it's about structural inequalities, yes. structural injustices. So these things don't change if you tinker with the symptoms. You have to go to the causes, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if you look at the last two years of, of the COVID pandemic, so much of the achievements and a lot, I mean, the recognition that women, uh, equality, you know, uh, girls, uh, child mortality, maternal health, and it's all understood programs, not enough money has gone in, but a lot of money has gone in, right? Mm. From, from, from countries everywhere. And we achieve quite a lot. The, most of it has been rolled back, you know, in, in, in the COVID uh, pandemic, yes. because when there is a disaster, whether it's a pandemic or whether it's a hurricane or an earthquake, women are the ones who always get left behind, you know? Um, so, so because the structural changes haven't taken place. Uh, you know, who gets to go to the doctor first to get tested or get the vaccine? You know, it's not the, it, in many places, it's not the women. Uh, so, so, so again, like I was saying earlier, none of these things can ever be taken for granted. And there's a lot of lip service. And, and, and having women's rights become real uh, and having a, a feminist understanding of, of, of how we need to organize our society and our lives is not about numbers either. It's not about saying, if, you have, if I have 55% women in the parliament, does it mean I'm going to... Uh, have uh, women's rights. I mean, if you look at some of our politicians who are women at the moment, yeah, I mean, I'm afraid <laughs> we are not very inspired. In fact, not, not at embarrassing. all. Not at all. But also, the fight for women's rights should not only about women, you know, speaking out and, and going out there to be frontliners. The men have to also come in on that. Like Family Frontiers, for example, you know, a lot of the mothers are speaking out and we also want the fathers to speak out 
uh, yeah, but the mother's voice needs to be heard. So I think you know the 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 women's you know International Women's Day uh, is a reminder. It's, it's not a celebration. Uh, it should be a celebration of of everything good, but like most days, but it is a reminder that it is not a one day one off day. Yeah. You know, every day we have to end the bias. Every day we have to really look at uh, women's role in, and women's are not not as victims, right? but uh, very empowering and empowered. And some of the most active uh, parts of movements and activism and energy and, and just sheer grittiness are really among the women's groups uh, and women uh, all over. Uh, now, of course, in TWN, it's, it's, it's not by design that we only hire women. Sure, yeah? sure. Never meant that, <laughs> <But> sorry. <laughs> somehow they kind of like gravitate and a lot of lawyers as well. Uh, also not by design. I think it's the nature <laughs> of the world. You need to go and read all these texts in the commerce and the full stop. Uh, and uh, um, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, you know, it's been lovely speaking to you today, Yogling. I guess, you know, I'm, I'm afraid we're running out of time, but just to conclude, you know, um, any any last message you'd like to leave us with, maybe to somebody who's listening and is inspired by you and would like to, um, you know, con- do the work that you are doing or in some way or other help in the work that you are doing, young or old, you know, I, I hate yeah. saying that it's only the young that need to do this. Young yeah, yeah, no, everybody, everybody can get, get involved. I, I think there are many ways, um, you know, for example, in, now in Malaysia, we have a lot of uh, petitions going on. You know, every day we are getting so because And the number of petitions going around looking for public support yeah. shows how many problems we have. I'm, I'm talking about Malaysia as, you know, as a national kind of thing. Um, it just shows there's so many, so many things out there. I, I, you know, every time we have had a disaster of any sort, you know, the way Malaysians self-organize just spontaneously, okay, that is tremendous energy and care uh, that we have in this country. And you see repeated in many, many places. So I would say that there are so many ways to get involved. It doesn't, you don't have to become a full-time NGO person to be involved. But we also need to have dedicated people because the work actually takes, you know, it is very consuming. Um, But it doesn't mean that uh, if you are not able to just, you know, be working full time in an organization, uh, you know, uh, and be a so-called activist, that therefore you are not. Every one of us is an activist in so many different ways. And I think it's knowing what's out there and we are able to know more today, uh, contacting, uh, you know, groups. Uh, and and be under no illusion, we are also all human beings. Yeah, we have our quirks, uh, we have our egos. Uh, we can be wrong. We also have our interests, which may not be necessary. You know, so let's let's not make it sound as if uh, if you are an activist, you are therefore you know uh, naturally like the good guys. <laughs> um, yep. um, and I think humility. I think humility coming together uh, and, and for a lot, of, and I think very much uh, many of us in the different you know organizations around the world and in this country, I think the mentoring is important uh, and it doesn't have to be young or old, you know, anybody who's interested because, uh, you know, it, it's that relationship we build up that we work together. Yeah. Uh, so come forth, there are so many issues in this country uh, to work with uh, and to work for and internationally as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Yokling, for sharing uh, all of that with me today. I've been speaking to Chi Yokling. She's the Executive Director of the Third World Network. If you'd like to find out more about the work that the Third World Network does, just head to their website, twn.my. They're also on social media. And of course, you know, look up the work that Sahabat Alam Malaysia does and also uh, CAP, as uh, you know, Yokling was mentioning. And if you miss any part of today's interview, you can always download the podcast at bfm.my or you can find it on the BFM app. This has been Good Things on the Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.